Hey, Theologizers. We are back in action. Me and my brother, Benny Boy. How you doing, Ben? I'm doing great. How you doing, Tuts? Doing, doing good. So uh, we have a treat for you guys, Theologizers. This is something that we've been wanting to talk about for a while, which is the topic of universal salvation. And the reason we think this is a good time is because uh, our, our boy, heavy hitter theologian David Bentley Hart, DBH, has written a book recently on this topic called That All Shall Be Saved. So me and Ben had a pretty solid conversation about our thoughts in the book, on the thoughts of the argument he makes, just universal salvation in general, what we think of eternal conscious torment, the annihilationist view. So this is um, the first half of, of our recent conversation on universalism. So enjoy. Ben, what will we be discussing this episode? Uh, nothing too controversial. Just uh, the question of universal salvation. Heresy! But it is unorthodox! All right. So the reason that we decided to do uh, our episode on universalism finally was because recently, uh, if anyone's familiar with David Bentley Hart, he's a very well-known public intellectual and Eastern Orthodox theologian. A.K.A. DBH, a.k.a. The Big Hurt. The Big Unit. The Big Unit, you're right. We referenced him a few times in, in, in passing in some of our very early on episodes, but we haven't really mentioned him in a while. Yeah, so he's a he's a writer that we both get a lot of get a lot out of. Um, we've I think we both really appreciate him. The first book of his I listened to audio book of was um, the Experience of God. I listened to that one as well. Excellent, excellent book. Anyway, uh, sorry side side trail there. Um, so DBH recently came out with a, his kind of definitive statement of his universalist position called that all shall be saved where the all is in all caps and is very giant on the cover. If there's one thing DBH is not, is subtle, beat around the bush, coy. You're going to know what <laughs> DBH believes, okay? And I love him for that. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, he's very bulldogish about it, too, which I think can be both a virtue, but also a blessing. Or not, not a, sorry, <laughs> virtue, but also a curse at times, the, but we'll agreed. But but if if we have one guy with the intellect of David Bentley Hart who's going to be taking on some of this, I, I think there's good and bad to both being very gracious and subtle and very like forthcoming, more aggressive, bulldogish. I, I would, yeah. I'd rather take the more probably aggressive stance if I had to choose. I think it, I think it depends on the audience, but yeah, like yeah. I'm glad we have someone like DBH on our team. I've always have thought, a voice like that. Yes, yeah. I've always thought of. I think that tone is more appropriate um, when he was like the experience of God and other stuff, where he's more criticizing like pop atheism. So I've I've always kind of thought of DBH as kind of the uh, Christian version of Christopher Hitchens. Yes, where yes. he has. Uh, he can be kind of rude, you know, and and bulldogish, but he has such charisma and intelligence that you kind of appreciate the style. Yeah, <laughs> and almost like a, almost Christopher Hitchens too. That's what well. I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. Oh, you, you said Richard Dawkins. I thought. Did you say Hitchens? I said Christopher Hitchens. I think. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. No, no, no. Richard Dawkins can. Yeah, no. Richard Dawkins ain't got style, <laughs> dude. Come on, he ain't got charisma. Yeah. 
Uh, I, I would say I'd say the opposite voice. That's more subtle, more gracious in the universal salvation department would be like a Robin Perry. He yes. he would kind of balance out DBH. Yeah. So Robin Perry uh, wrote a book um, that I've also read called The Evangelical Universalist that came out like a decade ago or so. Um, and that's a much more, um, m- much more uh, kind of subtle and very careful and very in-depth exegesis sort of approach to the universalist question. Mm-hmm. Um, DBH's book is a lot more polemical. Um, but they again, they have kind of different functions, I guess. Um, yeah. Anyway, so yeah, we've been wanting to talk about universalism in general for a long time. So we thought that this book coming out, we could kind of use as a kind of platform to talk about a lot of these issues surrounding universalism. But before we dive into the kind of details of the debate, um, well, let's let's just be upfront at the start from where we're both coming from with this question. Um, first, then we'll talk a little bit about how universalism is generally treated in the church. So, so what, where would you, where would you say you're at with your thinking about the question of hell and universalism at this point, Brett? So at risk of sounding controversial, um, if, if we were to have a spectrum on the, on the nature of, of hell and believing in hell and all of these, um, all of these points of view, but just the nature of hell where you would have at the far end would be eternal conscious torment. Then you would have after that, maybe annihilationism. Mm -hmm. And then you would have more of a hopeful inclusionism. And then at the other extreme, you would have a a full universalism. Let's stop right there, actually, for a second, so we can kind of define our terms. Maybe that's too much. Yeah, no, no, that's that's really helpful. I think the spectrum view is really helpful. I just want to make sure that our listeners are on the same page, right? So the traditional view, eternal conscious torment, that that kind of is what it sounds like, right? That's what most Christians assume it is that those who are not, you know, in Christ in the final judgment um, experience eternal conscious torment. There are different versions of that. Some think that the torment is a kind of positive retribution on the damned um others like c.s lewis um or jerry walls would say no it's this, it's this kind of uh self-imposed torment right it's kind of self-imposed alienation from god forever then you'd have annihilationism as brett said which is of course the view that at the final judgment those who are not in christ um experience uh, the lake of fire hell gehenna whatever you want to call it as a consuming fire so even if there's some sort of temporal punishment, at the end of the day, the damned are just snuffed out of existence. Then what Brett called hopeful inclusivism or hopeful universalism, uh, that's kind of the view that says that, I guess they're kind of different versions of that as well, but it, it basically says probably most people will get in. It's kind of a view of like, you're kind of in until you're like, you really insist on being out. Mm-hmm. And so most inclusivists would say, you know, you can be saved maybe at some time after you're, you're dead before the final judgment, or you can be saved because you have a kind of implicit faith in Christ, even if you don't explicitly recognize the truths of Christianity. Eventually, you know, if you have that implicit faith, you will and you'll be saved. And it's only if probably a few who are deeply evil and intransigent in their unrepentance 
that will be lost. Would that be a good description of the inclusivist view? Yes, yes, definitely. And then on the opposite extreme, of course, there's universalism, which says that eventually everyone will be saved through Christ. Um, Although for many people, it will likely involve a period in hell, but hell for traditional universalists is understood as a a purificatory thing. It purges people of their sin and it's temporary. And then eventually everyone is saved. So in this sense, Christian universalism is not Christian pluralism or religious pluralism, which says that, oh, all roads lead to God. There's nothing unique about Christianity. The kind of universalism we're concerned with and that DBH writes about is Christian. It says that there is one way to God, it's through Jesus Christ, but eventually everyone will be saved through Christ. So now we have our definition. So continue with your explanation, Britt. Yeah, good job at defining all of the terms. I think that was very much on point. So as far as my own personal beliefs at this point in time, um, I I would say that I fall in between hopeful inclusionism and full-blown universalism i would say that we could call that dogmatic universalism yeah i would say i fall in between i i I don't think i'm at a point where i'm ready to say with absolute certainty i'm a full-blown universalist but i i would still say i'm actually beyond like more of that hopeful inclusion mindset like that mm-hmm. brad jersack takes on and, and others i would say i'm beyond that so i'm pretty close to universalism i think it's i think it's what actually logically and rationally makes the most sense out of the christian world view i think it fits the bill the best i think that there's many passages in scripture that supports it and although there, and I will say this, I'm not a, a universal, I, I don't believe in universalism without a hell. I, I believe that hell is very mm-hmm. real, but that it's not eternal, that, that hell isn't just um, punishment for punishment's sake, that even, even if the punishment is, is an extremely long duration of time for the most wicked humans to have ever lived, I believe that they're... The purpose of hell and that is an eventual reconciliation with those souls and that hell serves a purging purpose. Um, so, yeah, that's where I would fall on the grand spectrum of views on the nature of hell would be in between a hopeful inclusionism and a full universalism. What about you? All right. Um I really don't know at this point. (laughs) I've been through the gamut, you know, as I've said in other episodes, I've had periods in my Christian walk where I've leaned, you know, more or less towards all these different views. Um, Probably most recently, I've, I found for a while, especially over the last year and a half or so, the annihilationist view very compelling just scripturally. Mm-hmm. Just because, and and DBH himself admits this in his book, it seems like most of the images that have to do with hell are images of death and destruction, whether in the Gospels or in Paul or in Revelation. 
but there are, you know, a few important images where it talks about torment, right? On Revelation, you know, it says the, the smoke of their torment, you know, goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day or night, right? But there are other passages, like you said, that seem universalist, right? You know, Paul says, as, as an Adam, all die. So in Christ, all will be made alive. Mm -hmm. um, Christ will be all in all. Yeah, God will. Yeah, God will be all in all. So I guess recently I've, I'm kind of in a transition theologically. I've been really gravitating towards Eastern Orthodoxy. Um, and again, DBH himself is Orthodox. So I guess I'm open to the kind of view that uh, the kind of mainstream view in Eastern Orthodoxy is that hell is eternal torment, but it's not a punishment per se. It's not a retributive punishment. Rather, what hell is, as Isaac of Nineveh says, is the it's the torment of experiencing the unveiled presence of God and God's love. So the pains of hell are the pains of an eternal f refusal, right, to engage in a love that is now fully manifest mm -hmm. to you. Um, so I'm open to that kind of view, but again, I'm kind of in a transition. Kind of a lot of things are up in the air for me right now. So I see the appeal of all the views. Um, I the one that I'm most sure just can't can't be right fundamentally is the retributive traditionalist view. Yeah. Um, yeah. That God is actively, you know, like you have the Reformed tradition or in Thomas Aquinas, God is actively inflicting physical and mental suffering as a recompense for sins. Yeah. Um, I just find it almost impossible to square that with the revelation of God in Christ. But again, I do see that some images you could reasonably take and some philosophical lines of thought, you could say that it is eternal but again, it's just the natural consequence of experiencing the unveiled presence of God. So I'm kind of up in the air right now. But I also, I would say I'm, I'm kind of, I'm hopeful though. I would say I'm an inclusivist, no matter what turns out to be the case. I'm very hopeful because God is love. God is revealed in the perfect love of Christ. Yeah. That he will do everything in his power to save Right, anyone that even has a remote possibility of being saved, yeah. and I and I also tend to think that for many people, that will happen after death. So between death and resurrection, so I believe in praying for the dead for that reason. Yeah, so that's where I'm at. True, I think it's a very important topic. Probably more important than uh, what I've seen a lot of Christians might think. Um, because what I've noticed is, especially with people that I know who are unbelievers, and I, 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 would, I think this is the case for probably even like most unbelievers who, who, who know some, something about the Christian faith. What keeps them away, I, I think many of them, it's this. Because I've heard so many um, side comments from uh, non-Christians over the years that almost all of the criticism is this kind of hellfire brimstone 
caricature that they have of the Christian faith. Like, oh, I guess I'm going to hell, or they're oh, they're going to tell me everyone's going to hell, you know. And and that's I I think what keeps most people away from the Christian faith because they, people don't understand how that can be reconciled with the Christians saying that you know God is love, He wants His personal relationship with you, He died on the cross for you, you know. They hear all of that rhetoric coming from Christians, and then they 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 hear all this hell stuff and i think most people they just can't really reconcile that and they just throw christianity to the side because of it so i think it's a really important topic not only because i think it's i think it can help a lot of christians you know in there who are already you know professing faith in christ trying to walk it out i think it would i think it would just help so many christians um if they can get and realize that there, the, the the view of hell is, is much more nuanced. It's much, there's much more variety of opinion on it within the, the faith than people might think. Mm-hmm. That's you know, and I think it can help people in really you know going deeper in their relationship with Christ when they realize they don't have to kind of hold this you know in the extreme case this kind of eternal conscious torment view and try to live out the faith and keep on believing that Jesus is love because it's you know that's so hard. Not so, not not only hard, but almost impossible, in my opinion, to reconcile those two. So, yeah. one and thing- even if they even if they retained that view, I think it's important to treat the question seriously. And yeah. a lot of a lot of Christians are far too glib yes. about this issue. I feel like There's not a lot- much discussion surrounding right. it. It's almost like people are afraid to talk about it. I yeah. think. Because- yeah, and I think a lot of Christians are afraid to reflect on it because once you, so it's easy to just kind of say without really sitting with the question oh yeah you know you know people who don't believe that you know this specific thing before they die they're just you know tormented uh retributed by god forever <laughs> but how many people have really sat and thought about what that really means unpacked when, that right I, when it yeah. when it comes to you know a father or a mother or a or a spouse or a child right it's easy yeah. to think about it as some abstract person you don't know right mm-hmm. or yourself Mm-hmm. Right. I remember there's a famous saying um, by some monk, some saint who said, uh, the, the, the only person you should ever think about it being a live, real, visceral possibility of going to hell is yourself. Yeah. When you yeah. think about hell, the main you sh- thing you should think is, I might go there. Yes. Right? Not, that, per- not that person over there, right? Yeah. That I have no connection with. Yeah, might go there. Well, that's the only way you can really, you know, stay morally and rationally sane while holding the Christian faith with an eternal, eternal conscious torment view is to keep yourself one step removed from what that yeah. actually means. It's the only way you can go about it. Because yeah. if you were to put yourself in that position, if you were really to, to I think, wrestle with it deeply, then um, I, I think. Y- your your moral intuitions and your logical intuitions just couldn't couldn't really handle it. So, yeah. in order to 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 keep yourself with a level head while going about your Christian walk and holding that view, you, you have to be kind of removed from it. Um, and, well, I'll say for me personally, this is a this is a big issue. I don't know. I'm not saying like I'm like more sensitive than other people but like this has been a big question for me yeah same for me hell i can't just 
roll with the traditional view. It just doesn't work for me. You know what I mean? It 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 so clashes with my moral compass and my moral intuition and just what I feel like is like the the deepest and planted at least good part of me. Um so what saved me personally, the reason I've been able to walk this Christian faith and get to the view of hell that I, I've gotten to was because of you showing me the George McDonald sermon on justice early in my Christian walk. That was early and it was so needed. And I'll venture to say that that was a godsend. You know, I know people who disagree with my view on hell would say that was a sin from the devil because it's heresy. But no, I, I really do believe that that was a godsend because... Yeah. No, it was... Listen, it, how I, I listened to a uh, a reading of that on YouTube. Um, and that and other George McDonald stuff, but especially, especially his sermon, unspoken sermon on justice, that played a big role in bringing me back to the faith. Because you know what? Before I listened to that, now like th- this idea of universal salvation, hope for all, is so like ingrained in me and i've seen that that it's so represented by many many loving deep like pastors and theologians today and throughout the the history of the church that i I, i've kind of really come to to terms with how how solidified this view actually is contrary to popular belief in the christian faith but but before i knew all this I, i think i was in the position that most christians are in where I just kind of thought it was a given that hell, ex- you know, hell is like this kind of eternal conscious torment thing, you know, like lake of fire, all those images. Like I just assumed kind of that was the case. So when I first listened to George McDonald's unspoken sermon on justice, it was like, it was like a waterfall of like healing and grace in that area, like flowing over me because I didn't even, it it was so eloquent. It was so thought out. It was so biblically based. And I was like, Oh, this actually could be possible. And it it, it was a game changer for me um, as a starting point to kind of reanalyze my view of, of hell. So that, that was, was a pivotal point for me. Um, And so, I think these sort of discussions like we're having now on this podcast need to be had a lot more a lot more often. You know, I, I I've seen it so many times, whether it be believers or unbelievers, this is kind of the elephant in the room that no one really talks about, but it's actually the big question that most people have when right. it comes to the Christian faith. And a lot everyone's of everyone's thinking it. Everyone's yeah. thinking it. And a lot of Although I think this is obje- this objection is completely irrelevant either way, but when people say, "Oh, universalism is bad because it would take away the impetus for evangelism," because if we can't scare people into the kingdom, what can we do? But I think that hinges. I think there was a time in history where that probably had some truth to it when most people already believed in God. Okay, yeah. But in the modern world, as you said, when many people are either agnostic, right? they don't believe in god at all then you can't scare them into the kingdom right when you when they hear that they might go to hell they're just like well that's just one more reason to think that this whole thing isn't true yeah right and so it it can often have the opposite effect if you portray hell in a certain way then it can can be a barrier as you're saying right to evangelism definitely i think it 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 does i think it's infinitely more harm than good yeah (laughs) 
So Ben, let's get into the the book itself. Uh, by DBH, David Bentley Hart, that all shall be saved. Because we yeah. both recently we didn't we listened to the audio book. It yeah. just came out a few weeks ago. We both listened to the whole thing. Yeah, and I would I, I don't know about you, Ben. Actually, I, I kind of know, but like I thought I thought it was a great book. I thought it was very thorough. It was very thought out. Um, I, I I think DBH cover try, did a did a a very good job of covering his bases when it comes to the argument for universe, a universal salvation. Um, so do you want to get into some of the maybe specifics that yeah. he gets into in the book? Yeah. I just wanted to say one more thing though, about the, this general stuff. Oh, sorry. I jumped the gun. No, that's fine. I just wanted to say that um, in terms of like you're saying, kind of just being more educated about the history of the church and, and the history of theology that, a lot of people, because they're not, especially in the Protestant world, they, when they hear about universalism, even if it's the specific Christian kind that we're talking about, I think they often immediately think, oh, that's this kind of liberal progressive thing. Like this, this kind of yeah. like modern, right, weird. Now, it's true. I think there are very like liberal progressive versions yeah. of, of universalism. But what people don't understand is that the idea that hell is a purgative fire and eventually everyone is saved goes way back in the church. Almost and, as early as you can go. Yeah. Two of the most important early church fathers, one of which is recognized by everyone as a saint. So Gregory of Nyssa, St. Gregory of Nyssa, um, one of the key minds in formulating and defending Nicene Orthodoxy about the Trinity. Okay. Yeah. He was a universalist. And then probably the most important, um, the first like systematic Christian theologian and biblical interpreter origin was a universalist. Um, his teacher who I've been reading a lot recently, uh, Clement of Alexandria was a universalist. Yeah. Um, so this is, I, so, and there's a point in one of Augustine's writings where he says um, that there are many Christians at the time that he's writing that believe that there will be an end to torment and everyone will be saved. And then he goes on to argue against that. So there's a lot of evidence that this was a pretty widespread view. It, it wasn't universal, no pun intended, but it was a, it was a, it was a substantive yeah. view um, that very important people held in the early church. So it's not just a kind of modern invention. Yeah. But why don't you give the, the, the time when those theologians were, were yeah. alive and right. So, uh, so, or uh, Clement of Alexandria, I think, was like in the late two hundreds A.D., early three hundreds. So very early, very early. Yeah. So this is like before Nicaea. Um, yeah. So Clement and Origen are before Nicaea. Uh, Gregory of Nyssa, I th he's around the time of Nicaea, I think, on uh, in the mid three hundreds or late three hundreds, I think. Um. Yeah, so this is—I mean, this is early, his early days. And for those who don't know, Nicaea was the Council of Nicaea, and, and what year was that, Ben? When when I the think it was, happened? I think it was three twenty-five. So around three twenty-five, the Council of Nicaea—that was called by Constantine, was it? Yes. Mm -hmm. And they were—that was the council where they laid down the it, the kind of the foundational. Um, faith statement of christianity correct yeah. ben yeah um and the, so the trinity and uh yeah the divinity of christ 
Yeah. So these thinkers that we're talking about were pre that council, some of which contributed very much to the council. Like you said, Gregory of Nyssa was a Gregory origin on the Trinity. Uh, uh, Gregory of Nyssa. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and, and, and even though it's been, it hasn't been necessarily the mainstream view. It hasn't been this like ragtag band of lost boys. Like there was in the early church there, there, there was a, probably a substantial amount of Christians who believed in universal salvation. And throughout the history of the church, there has always been a solid strain mm-hmm. of thinkers. Yeah, it's been a minority. Christians. It's been a minority, um, granted. But there have always been voices. So, like, I've always I, been there. Yeah, so Isaac of Nineveh, he's another saint. He was a monastic, he was a universalist. I quoted him earlier. Um, in more recent times, Karl Barth. Uh, had universalist tendencies, very influential theologian. So George McDonald, obviously. Yeah. And even today, like, like DBH yeah. who we're talking about this episode. So, all right. So let's talk about the book. Um, so do you want to start Brett? So what are the kind of overall thoughts on the book or. Oh man, I was expecting you to start Ben, but okay, guess... I'll start. I'll start. Okay. Cause okay. I think I kind of remember it's very well laid out. Uh, each yeah. um, section of the book has a very specific aspect of universalism, way of arguing for it. One of David Bentley Hart's main arguments has to do with the nature of creation. Yes. Um, so I, we're obviously going to have to deal with like very oversimplified versions of his arguments. But we'll try to tackle kind of the big ideas in the book. So basically what Hart tries to argue is that we can't make sense of creation as the free act of a perfectly good God if hell is eternal for anyone. And basically his argument is that God in creating out of nothing knew right, what the consequences would or wouldn't be of his creating. So logically prior to his creating, he knew whether there would be some people that would be damned or whether, you know, it would be likely or unlikely or whatever. And on the traditional view, he knew he either knew for sure that someone would be damned or that, you know, it was a decent probability that, you know, a decent number of people would be damned forever. But he still considered the act of creation morally worth it so to speak. Now, Hart argues that this is an incoherent idea. If we think of God as the good itself, then how could God as the good itself have chosen to freely create a creation that would be permanently marred by the desecration and torment of many of his creatures. So Hart kind of tries to argue that if that were the case, God would kind of be morally culpable in a way for creating with that knowledge. Mm -hmm. Again, it's kind of a more complex argument than that, but that's kind of the gist of what he's saying is we can't make sense of God's act of creation as a perfectly free and perfectly good act if God in creating kind of immediately took on this risk that he thought it was worth it right yeah 
And DBH thinks that if you think about the nature of even one person being eternally lost, right, and tormented forever, that how how could God think that that person was worth it? He thinks that person would almost be like a sacrifice that God was willing to make for yes. the salvation of everyone else. So what did you think of that argument, Brooke? I thought it, I thought it was a pretty darn good argument. Um, and and I actually had had heard a talk that DBH, you can refer to him as Hart. I'll refer to him as DBH. We're talking about the same person. I just like DBH. Um, I had actually watched a talk that DBH gave on YouTube on this particular argument for uh, universal salvation, uh, the the argument from creation. I think it's a good argument because what it's what it's saying is is you have to to look at the act of creation and how that act interacts with the Christian view of God that we all hold true. I mean, we all hold as true, which is God is all loving. He's all knowing. He's all powerful, particularly his traits of being all loving and all knowing. So God being God would know the risks involved in his pure act of creation. It's established that in the Christian faith that God doesn't need to create to add anything to himself. So it's not like he's creating with, with a need, like, oh, man, I'm bored. I need something to do. Or I'm lonely just hanging out with the Trinity. I need more people to 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 be in relationship with he he doesn't in and of itself need anything by the act of creation he just is creating out of according to the christian faith pure love no need it doesn't add or take away anything to god's nature so because that's the case that he doesn't need anything by creating god should not be willing to risk losing any part of that creation in the end. Mm-hmm. And if there is a risk in doing that, then God m- is morally obligated by his nature of love not to take that risk. Yeah. Even if it's one person in the end, even if it's Adolf Hitler, one single person in the end that does is not eventually reconciled to God, that, that means that that single act of creation by God can't hold water morally unless because there is an individual an imago day an image bearer of god a creation that is going to be laid at the altar of almost sacrificing themselves in hell for everyone else even if it's one person right and i I think a lot of people are wary of that because they're like hey we should we can't hold god under moral standards but but Actually, DBH, we can't. DBH says that he's saying this is a manner of speaking. Yeah, about but it's God is the good. So yeah, he has no obligations. That's just kind of a manner of speaking. We have obligations. God has no obligations because he's not. He's not a creature choosing goods. Yeah. He is the good. It's just a conflict of nature versus exactly. the creative. Exactly. If act. God is the good, then we yeah. there are only certain things that he could engage in because the Christian faith 
claims that God th- th- claims that they are know the nature of God. They're claiming they're they're presenting truth claims about God's nature. So if Christianity is going to do that, then then what God does, His acts, all need to fall perfectly in line with the nature that we're proclaiming God has. And one another point that DBH makes is that the act of the creator can't be divorced from the creator's nature, just like our acts can't be divorced from our nature. Acts are directly related to our nature and God's acts are directly related to his nature. They're expressions of his nature. They're expressions of it. So Paul says, right, the invisible attributes of God can be seen in the creation. Yeah, so the DBH makes the argument that, that Christianity, based on the creation argument, if there is any, if there is a, a, a hell that someone will never be reconciled out of, then that is a direct conflict to God's nature and is therefore an incoherent worldview. Right. So I think it's a pretty good argument. And I think part of DBH's background assumptions there that I completely agree with is this idea that whatever you want to say about hell and creation and so forth. It's not Christian to view God as a kind of utilitarian, right? As a kind of consequentialist who says, well, if I can save, you know, more people or whatever than being damned, that God's kind of calculating morally, right? He's kind of Mm -hmm. instrumentalizing the salvation of people, right? So we can't think of God as being like, well, if I can, you know, save a million people and only lose five, well, that's a good balance, so yeah. sometimes, uh, like William Lane Craig talks this way, like, like throwing the dice. Come on, if, if we have good odds, we're going for it. You know, right, right. So William Lane Craig sometimes talks about like feasible worlds where there's like a a good balance, an optimal balance, or something. Um, but I think DBH rightly says like we can't think of God in that way, and I think there are just independent ethical reasons why this kind of consequentialist utilitarian view of value is bad but the fundamental idea is that each human being is of infinite intrinsic worth and that's because we're image bearers of the good right we're little inflections of the good reflections right yeah and so and so you can't calculate the value the relative value of like numbers of things that are just infinitely intrinsically valuable in themselves exactly and so that's why he says, and I think this is really poignant, that we can't, because we can't think of numbers, what we have to say is that God choosing to create, knowing that even just one person will be eternally lost, is as if God chose to create knowing that everyone yes. w- would be eternally lost. Because this yes. is not a numbers game. Right. So you're... I'm sorry, then. You're bringing up... We're just going to start, I think, getting into a lot of different points he made throughout the book as they naturally flow into the conversation. I'm sorry to cut you off, but I was going to say all we're doing is we're we're holding the view of of hell eternal eternal. The, if hell is eternal, we're holding that view up to what Christians say God is. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's all. That's all we're doing. So, what Christ says about the lost sheep, right? Yeah. So you bring up the the good point, and now you're probably already going here with it. But uh, another point that DBH makes is, like you said, if you lose one, in a way you lose all. 
and I forget who what what theologian he brought up who actually made this point originally, but he he references a theologian who who brought up this this point that well, since we it might be Thomas Talbot. Let me, yeah, know as been... I, let, let me know as I get going if this is yeah. Talbot. So since we are Imago days of God, we are image bearers of God, and according to to the Christian faith and to Scripture, we have eternal worth. You know that that's so driven home in our faith. We have eternal worth. God is willing to go to the nth degree to the humiliation and death on a cross for every individual person that he's willing to leave the 99 go for the one that means that every individual person has this eternal worth to them even though there's been billions of people throughout history there's billions of people on the planet now the bible makes clear that god loves with an eternal self-sacrificial love every individual person so what dbh said when you going off this theologian he referenced is that the entirety of creation the entirety of the cosmos the entirety of reality can be summed up within one individual soul that one individual soul is in a way everything in creation because we all take in reality reality is only taken in by souls and by by individuals there is no reality without us taking it in and so the whole of the cosmos can be summed up within the whole of one person's one person's soul one imago day's soul so if you lose one person in a in a real way you lose everything yeah and that relates to yeah a point he makes related to that we'll probably get more into soon which is this idea that uh human persons only exist in communion yeah so there's also this idea that every every person helps to constitute the identity of everyone else right either immediately or through degrees of separation so you know no man is an island so you wouldn't have a brett unless you had brett you know the brother of ben you know the son of such and such parents right the friend of such and such we exist and get our identities and our fulfillment in communion. We're relational beings, and right. our identity can't be divorced right. from our relationships. And so because of that, even one person being lost in some sense creates hell for every person that they've helped to constitute the identity of by being in communion with them. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I less had a problem with, again, the kind of big picture value things DBH was saying. Again, I'm, I'm basically in agreement with most of that. I did have a problem just kind of with the logic of particular things that he said or ways he was arguing. So with the creation thing, one of the things he tries to get around is, so a natural response to this is, God, just because he knows that someone might be damned doesn't mean that he's using that person as a kind of instrument or a kind of sacrifice because he's trying to say that, well, if God knows this and he creates, then that person who's damned ends up being kind of viewed by God as a kind of instrumental good mm -hmm. for the salvation of the other people in some sense. But I, I don't think that that 
follows, right? So Elizabeth Anscombe, famous Catholic philosopher, well, she gets this from Thomas Aquinas, talks about the principle of double effect. And I don't think DBH really convincingly argues against this, that not everything that we anticipate as a potential side effect of our actions is something that has to be viewed as a means to pursuing that end. Yeah. Right. So for example, this is a really simple example. You could say, so if I if I intend to light a fire, well, an inevitable side effect of that is that smoke will come. But it doesn't follow from that that therefore smoke, the smoke of the fire is somehow a means to the end <laughs> yeah. of of making the fire. Um, or in a more a typical moral case. So you imagine, you know, someone piloting a drone. And, you know, there's a terrorist hiding out in a populated area. If they choose to, by the way, I'm not defending this action. I'm just making a logical point. Okay. If they choose to fire a missile intending to hit the terrorist and civilians die, that doesn't mean that the pilot was using the civilians as a means to the end of killing the terrorist. It's something that they knew might happen as an as an incidental side effect, but that doesn't mean that they're killing. You couldn't describe their action coherently as killing civilians in order to, right, kill the terrorists. It's just it's just an unfortunate side effect. Yeah. Now now this debate is really complicated, but suffice it to say, there are good reasons to think that we can make this principal distinction between some things that we know will be side effects of our actions that we could consider means, like intended means or instruments, and other things that are just incidental, although known. Or I might use a hammer to nail in a, a nail. So my, my intentional action is I'm nailing the nail. The hammer is a means of that action, right? It's an instrument of that action. But what about the sound emitted by the hammer? Is that intentionally enfolded within my action? No, that's just a known side effect. It also might be an unfortunate one, right? If it wakes up the neighbors. Yeah. So I don't think DBH kind of took seriously enough um, the, the work that that distinction can make. Now, one way he tries to get around this is he tries to say, well, there's also this other issue of if achieving some good G... Sorry, I'm putting on my analytic hat here. I have to use letters. If achieve, if in order to achieve some good G, I I know that I can only achieve G on the condition of the possibility right of P. Then he thinks that we can infer that therefore G is only a conditional good because he th so in the context that we're talking about, he he thinks that if God knows that he can. So say like the the thing for the free will defense that God wants to have in creation, right, and preserve, and he thinks is intrinsically valuable, is the possibility that people can freely enter into a loving relationship with him. Now he says, even granting that view of freedom, if God knows part of that possibility is someone will be damned, then the good he's seeking, the good of the salvation of some or their the exercise of their free will to have a relationship with him can only be a conditional good. I just think that that clearly does not follow. I just think it clearly does not follow 
that just because in a particular circumstance, you know that you can only achieve a certain good through if some other bad thing happens, that doesn't mean that the good is therefore only conditionally or instrumentally good. So for example, so you might think that it's intrinsically good for the pilot to kill the terrorist. Let's just assume that's the case. Just because in, in the tragic circumstances he, or contingent circumstances he exists within, uh, some civilians are going to die, that doesn't mean that therefore the death of the terrorist is no longer an intrinsic good. Um, so I, I just thought that kind of part of the argument where he was kind of getting into the logic of how we can best characterize God's intentional action, given what he anticipates, I didn't think that was as convincing as, as he pretended that it was. <laughs> I think it, yeah. that discussion about the nature of intentional action and the principle of double effect, right? Where again, some effects are means, other effects are just merely foreseen consequences. That's a lot more complicated and interesting of a discussion in philosophy than he made it seem. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I'm inclined to think that he failed in his argument at that, at that point. I don't think that we have to think, even if God knew that some people would or might be lost in creating, I don't think it follows that therefore those are instruments for the salvation of others. I don't think it follows that therefore the salvation of others is only a, a conditional good. Um, so yeah, I found that unconvincing. Okay. I, I can, I, I tend to agree with you on that, that specific point. I, I don't think that that point, as far as intentionality, interacting with the larger point of, of the creation argument, um, one way or the other affects the creation argument greatly. Um, cause I would say, yeah, you know, as far as intentionality, I, I don't think that God creating at a risk of losing some means that his that, that there's somehow instruments to his good or that that God is using and willing to take that risk apart from um in the creative act and 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 that that means that his intention is to just use the the lost as the, the the absolute necessary unfortunate <laughs> bad consequence of his creation to win all but i still think the argument of creation still holds whether what what regardless of god's intentions and i think you could still argue that it was not a good idea probably not the best idea to create if there was a risk of that regardless of how that intentionality plays out yeah yeah, well, so here's here's another quick problem, though, I, I had with this part of the argument. I feel like he also didn't take seriously enough the the complexity of how different views of God's uh, omniscience, particularly his foreknowledge, uh, relate to this issue. So throughout the discussion, uh, David Bentley Hart assumes that God has what philosophers of religion would call middle knowledge. So middle knowledge is knowledge of the counterfactuals of human freedom. So that's a fancy way of saying he knows propositions of the form, right? If person P were in situation S, then P would freely do X. So he knows these counterfactuals. And so David Billy Hart assumes he has this kind of knowledge logically prior to creation. So he takes into account, say he knows if he creates, then certain persons will freely 
choose to damn themselves. And then the problem is that if he has that kind of knowledge, but freely chooses to create, then how can he justify that? But there are many, and again, I'm not saying these other views are right or wrong. I just, again, I'm trying to introduce more complexity than David Bailey Hart gives off, right? And I think it's important for people to realize a lot of these arguments that might seem logically surefire on the surface, that there's a lot more controversy about them if you're actually familiar with the philosophical literature. Which you would be, Ben, as opposed yeah. to more of a layman like me. Yeah. Not to sound elitist or anything, but but no, it's, I mean, yeah. it's true. There is a kind of expertise. I mean, there's a whole field of philosophy of religion. So there are many Christian philosophers who would say that God does not have that kind of knowledge. And it's not because God isn't omniscient. It's just because the nature of freedom is such that prior to someone doing a certain act, unless there's an actual person to do that act, well, there's nothing that could ground the truth of a proposition like that, a counterfactual of human freedom. There's just no fact. The idea is that there's no fact of the matter about what any particular person will or won't or would or wouldn't choose in any given circumstances until they actually exist and they're in those circumstances and you see what they do. Yeah. Right. Whether by being present there or through or sim what's called but, simple foreknowledge. So, th but this throws it, makes his argument more complex because it seems like his entire argument really hinges on God having this having middle knowledge. But if he doesn't have that knowledge, then the, the most that God knows logically prior to the act of creation is that some people or other might choose against him, but he doesn't know any particular person will or won't. And so if, yeah. you, arg if you argue that the possibility that, so that some of creation can enter into a loving relationship with him is such a great good, such an intrinsic good that it's worth it to create. And then God only finds out who or how many choose one way or another logically pro posterior to the act of creation. Then it seems like it's, you could still say it's an issue, but, but it's a more complicated issue. Does that yeah, make sense? It does. Let, let me, Ben, just, just to jump in for a second, I'm going to get into a, maybe a, a, a other arguments that he makes in the book, but I think kind of relate to some of the issues that you you take with uh, this particular um, argument of intentionality and and what uh, his omniscience and what knowledge base he has prior to creation is. I think that d despite that, we all grant that God has a high level of knowledge. Um, the, the the specifics we can argue, um, but and, and I think that it's very clear just from our knowledge, you know, now that we're living in this world that God created, that in, in our finite lives, it's not a given that it's not obvious that the Christian worldview is true. I think by God's grace and by God's revelation, we can come to that conclusion. Um, whenever 100% sure. You know, we're going into the hiddenness of God. We're going into the complexity of what we see around us, um, the finitude of our lives, the chaos of our lives. Um, that's an obvious fact that we're all experiencing. And I would venture to say that God probably knew that was going to be the, the, the reality of what we would experience in the world he created based on this is the world he created. And that because of that limited knowledge, 
because of the chaos of life, because of all the factors that come into play in our experience and in our choices and in our free will, that there is a pretty good chance that there's going to be a, a good chunk of us that are, are going to resist God, you know, especially the enticing nature of a lot of sins um, and, and that we have this kind of brokenness in us from the start that kind of makes us gravitate towards more selfish things, things not of God and not of the ultimate good. So I, I don't think it's a stretch to assume that God knew that was at least a good possibility because it's a very obvious brute fact of, of, of rea- reality. So I would still say that that's a good argument to say, hey, God took a very substantial risk if, if we're going to say that there's going to be some who are forever lost, that there, there's definitely a solid risk involved regardless of the level of his omniscience, the, yeah. the level of his knowledge. Well, um, I, I would agree with that. I'd agree with that. I, I, I just think that all I was saying is that it, I know I, what you're saying, though. The argument still looks different, and you might think is more— It's a different-looking argument, but I still think there's a lot that's still problematic, right? You might yeah. think it's more problematic if God knew specific potential— Yeah, that's more problematic, I grant you. I grant you. It's still problematic, don't get me yeah. wrong, but I, I, I agree that I think the intentionality that DBH projects onto God yeah. in some of the areas of the book makes it much more problematic than the baseline problem we're dealing with. This is the Theo Bros Podcast. <laughs>